1: I began talking about how we can influence our world. Now, I'm talking about specifically our world of people we know that do not know Christ as Savior because that's their greatest need. And so last week, I really parked heavily on the concept of how do I pray evangelistically for those people who do not know Christ as Savior. And we went over four times in Scripture, prayer is mentioned in the realm of sharing the simple plan of salvation with them. So we've covered that already. Today I want to talk about how do I live to be able to influence my world of those people who don't know Christ as Savior. Now to do that I could really go all over Scripture because the heart of God is that they would all become God's people by faith alone in Jehovah in the Messiah, in Jesus Christ, all the same. But right now I want to drill down on just five verses. And they will be the same verses we covered last week, but I'm going to go a little bit further in that passage and a little bit deeper so that we can own together how we can influence our world for the sake of people coming to faith alone in Jesus Christ. Yea, your family, your friends, your neighbors, your associates so that they might come to faith in Christ so if you have your Bibles I'd like you to open to Colossians chapter 4 again Colossians chapter 4 if you came without a Bible there's a Bible there in one of the chair racks so just pull one out and go to Colossians chapter 4 or if you'd like maybe scoot next to someone who has a Bible they'd be glad to share their Bible with you as we go through this verse by verse you might also follow along because in the outline that's been provided for you in our worship folder, we'll have the verses there, although I much prefer us using a Bible of our own, so I hope you can get one very soon. What I want to talk about now is the passage of Scripture, and I want to set you up as we begin to read to see if you can follow along and pick these words out, at least in concept, if not an actual word. I want to talk about the key words of Christ's followers especially in this passage in reaching others for Christ. Key words of Christ followers of those who want to reach others for Christ. Now, the words may not all be found in this passage, but I want you to see the concept that's in there. So let me read to you Colossians chapter 4. I'm going to read to you verses 2 through 6, and you can follow along if you'd like in the notes that are in front of you. Verse 2 says this. Paul writing to the church at Colossae. That would be like him writing to the church here in Honolulu by extension, and he says, Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open up to us a door for the word, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I have also been imprisoned, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. Well, let's uh, talk about that. The three words, if you'd like to jot them down, are the following. We're going to look at the passage and see what it says about our thought life, at least from this passage, in influencing others for Christ. The second word will be our talk life. What do we talk about and how do we talk in such a way as to influence our world for Christ, specifically the gospel? The third word is the word walk. So it's our thought, talk, and walk. Now, I'm going to open that up in just a few moments, but I want you to have those words swirling around in your mind because that pretty much encompasses who we are, my thoughts, my talk, and my walk. It's what I think about, what I feel, And then what I speak and live. So, this is who I am. So, if I want to be Christ like, it will be involved in my thought, talk, and walk. If I want to influence others for Christ, I'm going to let the words of Christ, the Word of God, dwell in me richly so that I will have the proper biblical thought, talk, walk. Would you say those three words with me out loud together? Thought, talk, walk. One more time. Thought, talk, walk. Well, let's go back for a moment to your family and friends. Maybe in the margin of your notes, you would like to write down at least the initials of their name if you don't feel comfortable writing down their names on a piece of paper. So I want you to think, first of all, of a family member who doesn't know Christ as Savior, who you are especially impassioned about. And then you could put down maybe a friend that would be a part of your life. Someone who's not a family member, but now who's a friend. Someone that you kind of hang with, someone that you know. It's a friend. Someone you do something more than just have an event with. You do kind of casual stuff, social things. And then maybe you have an associate. This would be someone that you're on the team with, you're at work with, or someone that you actually have things that you do together, but you do it regularly, which means that you'll see them regularly, like an associate. And then we'll just talk about our neighbors, the person across the street, kitty corner from us, next to us, behind us, below us if we're in a condominium or above us, whatever it might be, someone by name that you know their name. Now, for a moment, you feel uncomfortable because you don't know their names. I'm not here to make you feel guilty because, oh, I don't know the name. They live right next door to me. Maybe, if anything, I would love to say in the sweetest way that I can that you go over there with a bag full of cookies and say, hi, my name is... And I bet they'll receive those cookies and even give you their name so you have a name that you can begin praying for. But now let's think about them as far as their salvation. What would be their greatest need? So to put it in a negative fashion, I believe their greatest need would be for them to place their faith in Jesus Christ so that they can forever and ever escape the horrors of eternal hell being separated from Jesus Christ and you forever, and missing an eternal intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what they need is Christ. And if they don't have that, they will be in a horrible place, separated from Christ and you with no intimacy with Christ forever and ever and ever and ever. Now, you can spin that into something positive. If they trust Christ as Savior they will spend eternity in the glories of heaven in the presence of God, singing his praises, and with you together in this great symphony and choir unto the Lord with eternal intimacy with God if they know Christ as Savior. Well, that now brings in the question, what kind of motivation might help me to be able to share the gospel? I've studied a lot on evangelism, and I've studied through a lot of scripture, and I would love to tell you there's one motivator. But I'm sensing, as I go through Scripture, that God has so wired us with various personalities, various experiences and abilities and all of that, that I think God uses multiple motivations for us that works best for us. I don't think there's one singular one, but I also don't believe that there is just one singular one, if you know what I mean. There's going to be multiple ones, but there may be one that seems to have a higher priority, that touches you a little bit more. I would like to submit three to you that are biblical to see if you might embrace these that might cause you to one more time think a little bit more deeply about that person that's standing in line that's right at the edge of eternity in hell. The first one might be this. Why would it be important for us to connect with our family and friends about the gospel? And that is because there is the love of Christ. The love of Christ is not the love that He merely and only has for me. It's just the love of Christ that He has in me, for me, that now goes out through me to connect to other people. I'd like you to follow the passage. So if you will, hold your place in Colossians because we will pick that apart more deeply. But if you will, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This is a great chapter in 2 Corinthians. I would urge you to read it because it talks about reconciliation. For those of you that are new to that word... We who do not know, though when we did not know Christ as Savior, we're an enemy of Christ. We're an enemy of God. But God reconciled us together with Him through Christ. And it needed the person of Christ, what he did for us on the cross, and forgiving us of our sins and us placing our faith alone in him, that we're not only not an enemy of Christ any longer, but we are a child of God, a friend of God together because of that. But it took the person of reconciliation, which is Christ, the message of reconciliation, which is the gospel, the death and resurrection of Christ, and knowing that we need to place our faith in him and him alone. That's the message. It needed also the ambassador of reconciliation, which would be someone to tell us that. So Jesus is my reconciler. The message is the gospel. The ambassador who brought that message to me is Carol Pons. When we were in high school, she brought me that message. That's reconciliation. That's the chapter. But now what's the motivation for all that reconciliation is the passage we're going to look at right now. What motivates us to become these ambassadors? Verse 20 says we are ambassadors, but let's go back up to verse 14. It says, For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this. That one died for all, therefore all died. Meaning we all needed a savior. We all died, therefore he died for all. And he died for all so that they who live, that would mean those who trust in Christ, might live no longer for themselves. And you might want to underline that phrase. We who live in Christ, because of Christ, he died. We died with him. He rose. We rose with him when we placed our faith in Christ. We who live might no longer live for ourselves, for themselves. But who do we live for then? We live for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Now, why do we do all of that? It's because of the love of Christ. Now, you might want to underline that phrase, love of Christ controls us. Now, I know that's the English translation of the word control. Sometimes it sounds so much that the love of Christ makes me do something and I'm nothing more than a puppet. I would much prefer a more accurate interpretation of that word, which would be the word influence. Influence. But when we heard the word influence, sometimes an influence is nothing more than a whiff of perfume as it walks by. Hmm, that smelled nice, but it really didn't change me. So it's more than just influence, but it's a little less than control. But somewhere in there, there is such a prompting that it, it begs a result in our life. Now notice the phrase, love of Christ, gets us to connect with others. Notice it doesn't say, my love for the lost. There are some teaching today that really try to put the burden of souls on us by getting the plight of the lost. And I did a little bit of that because the reality of they are going to go to hell without Christ. I get that. You get that. But sometimes if we just do it because we love the lost, I will tell you right now as a trained pastor that there are some people I find very difficult to love. And so if I dig into my love for them, it's going to be very shallow, very surfacey, very just kind of horizontal. But when I allow Christ to fully influence, prompt me, control me, then His love is going to use me because I don't love them, but I love Christ. And I love who Christ loves, and so He loves them. I love them through Christ because of Christ that does this. So my motivation is because of Him. So this way, when I look at people that are so hard to love, it doesn't matter. Now let's go back to the beginning of the sermon. I I told you about your family, friends, relatives, associates, neighbors. Now, you might have a cadre of those people in your life that you really like. And you're really, man, you don't want them to go to hell. And even now, just thinking about them, if they died in a car wreck today, it would ruin your whole week or maybe longer because they died. Then there are others that they didn't even make the list because they're just the irregular people in your life. They're the sandpaper people in your life. Those are the people that really kind of grade on you. And yeah, theologically and obligation-wise, you want them to know Christ, but will you get dirty for God and do something to try to bring them that message? I don't know. I have struggled with that. I have to dig into the Jesus who's inside of me to help that get out to do that because it is hard for me. So if I want to be motivated, then I need to be filled with the fullness of God. And I do that. He's already in me, but now filled with that fullness now is when I yield and I make sure that I deal with all the sin that's in my life. And so part of us living a holy life actually gets the byproduct of experiencing that love that now propels us to live not for ourselves, but for Christ. And if we live for Christ, then we will live for what He wants us to do. So the love of Christ should make us do this, and I really hope that it does. So it might be a commentary in our own relationship with the Lord. Why? We're not so consistent in our evangelism. The second is because of the privilege that the Lord gives to us. And I like this verse. Turn in your Bibles now to First Thessalonians chapter, um. 2 verse 4, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 4, and if you have your Bibles, I do want you to look at it, and I want you to get your pens ready. I've done this before, so some of our senior saints and our heritage families might have this mark, but we have so many new folks, which I'm so blessed to have new folks here. You haven't done this, so let me read through this and show you what this means. The verse says this in 2 four, First 4, 1 Thessalonians, it says, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak... Not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. Let's begin at the first part of that. Not so much being approved. Once you trust Christ to Savior, you're, you're essentially approved because you're ordained right then to bear fruit. John 15 says that. But let's go a little bit further than that. It says, We've been entrusted with the gospel. One great Bible scholar says this. I think he went too far out on the limb, but I think it's worth for us listening. He said, those of us who know Christ as Savior, we are fully entrusting our eternal destiny and the promise of Jesus Christ that he died and he rose again that says, if I believe in him, I will be forgiven of sin and I have eternal life. I am entrusting my eternal destiny, myself, my soul, my spirit, who I am in Christ, that he's going to keep his word. I'm trusting him. Just now as we do that, God, in a sense, is entrusting us with that message that saved us to now take that message to the rest of the world. Now I think that's pretty far out on a limb because God can still get the message out if I drop the ball. But I also want us to feel the weight of the responsibility, at least. And for me, I think it's more than a responsibility. I think it goes way past responsibility. It is that. But the privilege that we have to be able to share that message. Now, you have your pens ready? Here are the three words I'd like you to circle. And do it in this order, if you will, in your Bible or at least on your uh, sermon sheet. Circle the word speak. It says, so we speak. Circle that word. And then circle the next word, pleasing. Find the word pleasing, men, pleasing. And then find the third word, God. Speak, not as pleasing, men, but God. Now, with those three words circled, would you now read them out loud together with me? If we're given this privilege, entrusted with this message, to share it with our family, friends, and neighbors, and then how should we speak? Here we go. We are to speak pleasing God. Let's do it again. Speak pleasing God. When I think of the privilege that we have could not God, because He's God, He's creator of all things, could not have He put the simple plan of salvation in every cloud that was up in every sky, in every language, so that every person who knew how to read or grunt could look at those clouds wherever they were and read the plan of salvation? Could He have done that? Sure. Could He have done it on every blade of grass? He could have done every leaf that fell. Could He have every bird sing Amazing Grace? He could have done all of that. But the only person that He is entrusted with that precious An expensive message of the gospel is you and me to share that with a friend. And so to me, yes, it's a responsibility, and I I want to man up to that, but I think God would trust me. How many of you will give the keys to your new car to a 12-year-old son or daughter to drive? I know I sure wouldn't. Maybe not even to a 15-year-old. I don't want to get too far with this. But we're very careful who we'll trust something with because they might mess it up. But God says, I trust you. Now, later on, we're going to find out why in my next point, why he can do that. But just to know, we have that message. Let me go back to my two friends. One's named Stan and the other's named Bob that I mentioned that had cancer. One's a preacher, one's a Christian leader. If I had the cure to cancer, I don't, I wish I did. But if I had the cure to cancer, how could I call myself a friend to Pastor Stan in Pasadena how could I say that if he didn't know Christ as Savior and I had the cure and I played with him I, we did soccer we went to the game with our kids we went to concerts together we went to the beach together whatever it was but I never unloaded on him the cure to cancer now it's his responsibility where he's going to take it I can be real cute he won't take that message of the gospel that's his responsibility or my friend Bob So I can do all that I can. I'm going to dip it in as much honey as possible. I'm going to give it to him in a pill that's the color he wants. I'm going to put it in front of him when he wants, but he's got to take that pill because if he doesn't, he will die. And what is that pill? It's the gospel. That's the cuteness, all right? Get the point. They need the gospel. It's a privilege. Let's go to the third reason. When I was teaching at Moody Bible Institute in their graduate program, I taught with another dear friend of mine. And uh, while he was teaching there, we team-taught personal evangelism. It's funny, we're teaching personal evangelism in a graduate program at one of the premier Bible colleges in the country. And what we were talking about is the motivation for evangelism. And he made this statement, and I think he's pretty right on this. He says, you know, when it's all said and done, yes, the love of Christ will buoy buoy you up there to get the gospel. The privilege will stimulate you through privilege and joy and all of that. But he says, but when it's all said and done, when the dust settles on the busy day, it's really just obedience. It's just... God says so and we do it. And I really like what he had to say because there is that part of obedience. Not that he's a heavy taskmaster. We have all the energy of the spirit within us. We all, I got everything going for it. But it really boils down to I will or I won't. Do you agree with that? Let me share this verse to you because this is at the very end of the book of Matthew, but it happens to be nearly at the end of Christ's time on earth. He's already died. He rose again. So we call that the resurrection. But he didn't ascend to heaven yet. That's the ascension. So between the resurrection and the ascension, Jesus spent some time on this earth doing the last fine-tuning of his disciples. And so he now gives them the message. And one person said, if this was such an important message to give to the disciples, why didn't he give it again again and again and again and again and again and again? My opinion is, when Jesus speaks, he only needs to say it one time. Secondly, it so much permeated who Christ was And what he wanted us to do, he didn't need to say it again and again and again and again and again. again, So he said it. And this was the message of the great commission. Today it might be called the great omission. But let's go to the passage, Matthew chapter 28. You may want to get your Bibles out again and turn to this passage and mark some things up. I want to read to it first and then I'm going to kind of give you some of the uh, newspaper questions we're going to ask it. It says this, Because the command that has been given to all of us, we should then become a Christ follower in evangelism. It says here, go therefore, in verse 28, 19, 20, Matthew twenty-eight, nineteen and 20, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things, whatever I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. Well, the first question we're going to ask it is, who and when? Who is this written to and when are we supposed to do what he's telling us right here? The who is pretty easy. The who is the disciples as he was now resurrected but not ascended. But when I just throw out the word the disciples, that's okay. But you need to know the condition of the disciples to whom he gave this command at the end. These were the guys in Mark and Matthew that says they were fearful. They were unbelieving. They were doubting. And so Jesus had to speak strongly into their life. He upbraided them, as one translation says, because of their doubt, etc. And of course they had doubt. Jesus died. He's going, what happened? All of this kind of stuff. And now he's starting to show up. And what's going to happen? Our leader and all this. And so they had those doubts. I am so glad they had those doubts, at least that it was recorded. And here's why. Because Jesus now gives this commission command to these guys who had the fear, had the doubts, were uncertain about the future. And that tells me that with my fear, my doubts, my uncertainty, that command is given to me. So that doesn't mean I have to be perfect and get it all together and have to know everything and be hot for God in order to obey this command. He said he gave this command to fragile disciples. That's huge. That means you and me, we can do this with our doubts. So who is this written to? It's written to the disciples, but by extension, it's written to us because it says, now you guys do this, and you teach these people to do what I'm telling you, and that's kind of like an unbroken chain all the way today, so it's even to today. So who is it written to? It's you and me. So when are we to do this? In the Greek, in English, it says, go and do this. So it sounds like the command is to go. That is not the command, all right? The command comes a little bit later in the context of this verse. What is found is simply this. In the Greek it says, as you're going, or going. So the implication now is, wherever you're going, whatever life you live, whether you're in the neighborhood, you're at a party, you're at school, wherever you are, you're going to be doing this command in some measure. Now, it doesn't mean you can't make an appointment or a purpose to do something. Have it consciously designed that you're going to have that event occur. But the implication is far more than that. Wherever you are, you bloom where you're planted. So in other words, you're looking for opportunities to make the reality of this passage happen. You're recognizing that God has led you there. He's led those people there. So now you're starting to think, what can I do to maybe do level one evangelism, level two evangelism, level three evangelism? What am I doing? So it makes every event you go to a spiritual event. Did you catch that? It means every place you go, there's something there that you might do. Now, you're maybe so busy, you're running into Costco, jumping in the car and running home again. But in some measure, I want you to think about what can I do to do something for Christ? Maybe the most you can do is at least live a separated life so you don't mess up it later on when you've got to give the gospel because someone is watching. I don't know. So it's as you're going. So the who is you and me, the when is wherever we go, whenever we go. Then it goes on to say, and make disciples. That's the basic command in this, is to make disciples. Now the word disciple means a learner, pupil, or student. So it's our responsibility to help that person come to a point in their life, now catch this very carefully, where they trust Christ as their Savior by faith alone, and very quickly, perhaps as soon as they trust Christ, they then would now want to know more about the Christ in whom they've just believed, who He is, What he wants for them to do. So that discipleship, they're coming to a point if they say, I want to learn who Christ is. Oh, he's the Savior. He died and he rose again. I'm a disciple in the sense. I'm a learner. Now I want to go beyond just having facts. I want to put my facts into a faith where I now trust him. Now it continues on beyond after trusting Christ, not to get saved or to stay saved, but because I am saved, I remain a student of the Lord. So I learn more about now. What do I do with him being my Savior? How far does it really go? I have to tell you that Carol and I got married when I was very young. Not that she was very old, but I was very young. I was 19. Kids, if you're listening to this right now, do not get married when you're 19. What I can tell you is that it was not a shotgun wedding. We were pure as we went. We had the blessings of all the family members. And uh, that's not telling you how smart our parents were, but it is to tell you we had the blessing of it.